0: Hello, my name is Michael McLennan, and welcome to COVID Matters, the podcast produced by COVID Aid. In this episode, we're speaking to Ed Richardson from the COVID 19 Recovery Collective. In our chat, he speaks about the collective and how it came to be and what it's all about, so I won't spoil that for you. But I would highly recommend that you visit their website. It's full of powerful stories about people's experiences. I hope you enjoy the chat and I'll be back afterwards to tell you a bit about the charity and what we have coming up. To begin with, what is the COVID-19 Recovery Collective and
1: how did it take shape? So the collective isn't very really large. It's myself and a good friend uh, called Jane Irison. Um We, in the early stages of the pandemic, um, we both caught COVID, um, although mine is only suspected COVID and that, I'll get onto that in some more detail uh, later on. Um, But Jane works for the NHS and was a nurse, so she was tested uh, almost immediately and had a positive test. Um, And I think we both wanted to do something that we thought was going to have a positive impact um, for what we saw was happening around us. Um, So after a brief discussion, we decided to start a website that would allow um, people who um, potentially had COVID um, to submit their stories and experience of their lived experience of of COVID and, and how their recovery or lack of recovery was going. Uh, I think the it, it, almost immediately there was a sense that whilst we were um, all the media we were reading and so on was that this was a a, a two week illness and we were establishing very quickly that lots of people were experiencing um, illnesses far longer than two weeks and there wasn't that much support there for people um, so providing some support and reassurance I think was a, a key part of it and um, why we decided to start the website so the website was very simple it's just a, um, a an ability for people to submit their own experiences of COVID. Um, but it was a place for other people to come to read stories and reassure themselves that what they were experiencing wasn't unlike what other people were experiencing.
0: And what were the types of stories that started coming in?
1: Um, It's interesting. So we're, um, I'm sure we'll cover this later stage, we're doing some research on the stories now uh, and the chronological order of the stories is quite an interesting factor. Mm -hmm. So the stories vary from the beginning to the end um, partly as a society and infrastructure and developed around the pandemic and providing better services. Um, But the initial stories were stories of, I wasn't expecting this, and am I alone in this experience? Um, But um, they'd start off with um, um, tales of of the initial infection and feeling iller than they expected, Um, but often a sense of, of recovery, and then um, and then a decline in their in their well-being and health, afterwards. Um, but the stories are very personal because it was affecting a lot of people's um, family lives and the impact on their work and their day-to-day, uh, as well as their own mental health and physical health. So they were quite moving and emotional stories, um, but also a sense of um, wanting to connect with others having the same experience. Mm-hmm.
0: And were there any that you found particularly powerful?
1: Yes. Yeah. There were several stories that brought a tear to my eye. Um, I mean, we've had, we've had, we published about 80 stories, um, but we've had over a hundred submitted. Some of the stories we decided not to publish because either they weren't, we didn't believe they were as relevant, um, but other stories contained uh, information that we didn't decide not to share in public space. we got some international stories, um, but yeah, there are several stories that that certainly um, encapsulated a lot of the key factors that were appearing in the stories. Uh, but I think one of the things that we certainly, I certainly, I learned from the site and setting on the site and so on was that every story was slightly different. And that to bring any focus on any particular story wasn't the right thing to do because they were very personal and emotive stories for each person that submitted them. Mm-hmm. Um, so whilst in the research, we possibly found ourselves going to seven or eight stories that have been submitted and um, trying to get a wide um, scope of that sort of qualitative view has been an important part of the way we've, you know, we've, we've sort of reviewed the stories.
0: And has there been anything that's um, surprised you in terms of th- maybe the variety of the stories or some of the details?
1: Um, I don't know. I think I think there was... Um, periods of, um, frequency of the submissions was quite interesting. Um, so initially there was a slow pace and, um, I think we, uh, we were struggling for impact in terms of, um, accessibility on the, on the internet, because at the time when, as the pandemic broke, all the big news sites were getting all the search. Um, but over time, the, the, the website established its own, uh, footprint in search um, so people were finding us more and then there was there was a couple of periods where we had on a weekly basis we were getting four or five stories submitted and and you sort of as, as we came out of the first wave you were expecting things to slow down but it didn't slow down at all mm-hmm. and I, th- I think that started to give you the realization that this wasn't something that was going to be a short-lived experience for anybody the, the the pandemic wasn't going to be something that was going to be a first wave and we were going to be done by last summer this was going to be something that was going to be with our society for quite some time so I think, I think that was surprising. Um, I think the severity of some of the illnesses. And I think the other thing that came through early on was um, this wasn't an illness or disease that was affecting people who were not physically well. This was a disease that was affecting people who were, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a keen tholiner and I knew several people who were very fit and healthy who'd been severely impacted by um, the infection. Mm-hmm.
0: And then um, in, was it December when you then got funding?
1: It was December when we got funding. Mm -hmm. So we we started the site, we started talking about the site in uh, April in 2020. Um, And then I think we published our first story on the 7th of May in 2020. Um, But then over that time, you know, you start these things and you're not quite sure what the outcome is going to be, but you think, Mm -hmm. okay, well, let's start it and see where it takes us. Uh, i think in the back of our minds and so on we'd always thought about the possibility of doing some qualitative research on the stories that have been submitted um, but we never knew how many stories we were going to get submitted or how the site would grow so you kind of you have to develop your objectives as you go along and um by september october we were thinking okay we, we've got a good body of data here and i think it would be interesting to start doing some uh, research on it and that's when we started looking around for some funding we made some contact by that point um, a number of the, uh, professional, uh, healthcare, um, services and also the academic, um, institutions were getting interest in research. So a number of funding opportunities were coming in. Um, and Jane was involved in a number of other, um, bodies that were talking about research. So we were, we were quite in touch with a number of bodies. So yeah. So it was around December when we started, November, when we started looking for funding and it came through in December.
0: Mm-hmm. and how have things evolved since then?
1: Uh, with the, the, the well, so in, interestingly, you know, there's the, I, I guess there's two, two parts of that story, but the first part is with the site itself and what we were doing then. So the, the research has become predominant over the site. The number of site um, stories submitted to the site over the last two or three months has slowed, which, um, in lots of ways we're taking as a positive thing as the, um, the effects of the, the, the disease and so on are, are slowing. Um, but the research has been uh, intensified um but not delivered as fast as possibly we might have thought it might have been as the as we come out of lockdown our our day-to-day lives um become more uh, uh more demanding basically mm-hmm. so uh you, you remember this sort of pandemic period and so on where yeah we had kids at home and uh the pressures of work life and school and so on were more demanding but you were finding space to do Things such as the as the website because it was important, and mm-hmm. um, and now the pressures of the the life that you had before the pandemic are, are returning, and uh, and filling some of those gaps. So you're not finding as much time to do the things that you want to do and uh, things that you do in your for want of a better word spare time.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, what's the current status with the research, and what are you planning to do, you kind know, in the future?
1: Uh, So the research just reaching the, concluding the part of the analysis side of it, Um, so we've been working as a team of four, um, brought in some other people and so on to help us with the analysis, um, mostly to make sure it was objective, um, but also to put some additional rigour into the uh, methodology we were doing. so the analysis and coding um, of the stories has been completed uh, and now we're um, forming a paper that we hope we're going to publish in uh, a professional healthcare journal. And it's been interesting looking at the, without revealing too much the, the, the data, the number of different stories. So I think that the initial paper will be around um, uh, the lived experience of COVID um, and diagnosis and care of COVID um, over the pandemic and how how patients or participants in the in the experience um, experienced the disease and how they experienced their relationship with services that were delivered i think one of the big thing key things and so on was this was a, a, a novella virus so um healthcare services didn't know how to deal with the, the disease and its symptoms in the first instance so uh, there was a lot of um trying this and trying that um and now, healthcare services have developed around that, um, so they're much more aware of uh, how to deal with the disease. Um, so, the hope is that we can draw something from the data that allows people to deal with um, a potentially similar situation in the future where um, uh, healthcare services are put under duress from something they've not dealt with before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, But I think the other part too, actually, um, and this is very prevalent for what the conversation we're having right now is the the sense of community that came out of that situation, the sense of people looking to others um, for support um, and how um, in some part, digital services filled a gap on a global basis uh, where people came together to share stories, um, create communities, uh, reassure each other in a positive fashion over COVID, and, um, and how we might, uh, I think the interesting thing was that that wasn't facilitated by any um, government organisation. At the time, you know, it took several months before government organisations around the globe really caught up to speed, um, but how that came out of, um, I guess, individuals like ourselves, who thought there was um, a need for this, uh, and a, a series of uh, groups were born that helped people with these uh, these services that whilst the government's caught up.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that I thought when I was um, looking at the stories on your site and thinking about the nature of recovery, um, I thought about how fitting it was that, you know, it's recovery collective in the sense that um, there is something about that collective experience that has really aided people at a difficult time. Um, and I was wondering whether um, there's something you've personally got from from having been able to tell the stories of others and, and showcase these and be able to highlight them in such a way.
1: Yes, yeah, it, it's been it's been that's been from a personal point of view, it's been an interesting journey. I think <laughs> there was a, a, a point there was almost a sense of guilt that the the COVID infection that I believe I had was very light in its, um, in its symptoms. Uh, I was off color for want a better word for about a week and, uh, my daughter felt similar. Um, but then three or four weeks later I developed a couple of, so sinus headaches was something that was very prevalent for me. I had a sort of sinus headache that went on for weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a sense of brain fog and, and, you know, I, sent, I spent a, a fair bit of time on self-reflection myself and trying to establish whether the brain fog was from the pandemic or the experience of the pandemic or whether it was a, a, a symptom of the, the illness. But um, at the same time, I, I wasn't significantly ill. It didn't impact on my day-to-day for a long period of time. It slowed me down at running for a while. But then I was reading stories of people who'd been seriously impacted by the, the illness. And I think that's, encouraged me more than anything to continue with the work that, you you know, you started to, you were receiving messages from people just thanking you for setting up the website. And and that did spur me on to go, okay, this is important. And what we're doing here is important and it really is helping people. And, um, uh, but reading the stories, you were reflecting on your own illness and and enormous, am I in the position here that I can justify doing this? Am I part of this collective? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I think you, you, you did, you were, and it, it didn't matter anyway because you could see the value that people were getting from the from, from the stories and the submissions on the website, and, and that was the most important thing to focus on. And then um, finally,
0: um, what difference would you like the collective to have made?
1: I think really that sense, removing that sense of people being isolated and being alone. I think. Um, There was a lot of people who were quite scared uh, and uh, a lot of anxiety and stress caused by the illness. Um, But it wasn't just the illness that was causing the anxiety and stress. I think it was a lack of um, recognition um, from professional bodies at the time and governments um, that this was a much more serious illness than perhaps people had initially thought it had been. And I think by bringing people together and sharing stories and then facilitating others to be able to read those stories... Um, was a really important part of the work we were doing. And yeah, so I think, I think that's, that's the thing that, you know, that continued sense of being able to facilitate that and the hope that, you know, were the things that is to happen in the future that others and so on would take something from that and realize the benefits of providing services like that.
0: Thanks so much to Ed for his time. As I mentioned, if you haven't already been there, I would highly recommend checking out the COVID-19 Recovery Collective website. It's full of really powerful stories. Uh, I'll include a link to it in our show notes so you can find out more and pay a visit. If you haven't heard of COVIDAid, we are the UK's new national COVID-19 charity. We launched in May 2021, looking to support all those who have been affected by the pandemic. You can find out more about us at covidaidcharity.org, that is covidaidcharity.org, or search for COVID Aid Charity on social media. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.